0: said you didn't like, now's the time to let him know.
1: There has to be somebody. Well, that
0: either means you did a very excellent or very poor job, Mitchell. They're either so confused they don't even know where to begin, or it was so clear no or questions Or beware when all
1: men speak well of you.
0: And is that too, yes. Come
1: on.
0: Greg Rolak is a question. And we need a microphone for Greg. There's two mics up here, Greg. Alex, you want to help out? Okay.
2: I also help. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alex.
3: Uh, my question was: um, In the end, you were saying there's one of three responses either you can medicate your fear, you can forget your fear, or you can entrust your your fear to the Lord and respond. All that to say is, um, is there a place for medicating fear that isn't, you know, um, necessarily, I don't really have like a use case for this. I'm just saying, Perhaps there are some who struggle with fear that maybe there's a place for medicating fear. I don't know enough about that. I'm really just kind of starting that conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The issue is going to be if you treat it as an illness alone. If you if you only take medication and that's your only solution.
0: So, yeah. When when Mitchell and I are working on this, uh, he said it clearly at the beginning. That the issue is, if you if you only treat it as a physical issue, we know that a lack of sleep can make someone anxious. We know that certain drugs can make people anxious. We know that there are physiological causes for anxiousness, potentially for fear, paranoia, and and the list can grow. It's not denying that. It's if you want to only treat it like. The, here, here would be the danger. I have no reason to rethink. I have nothing to trust about. I have no truth that I need to grab hold of. I simply have an illness, and I simply need to take my medicine. Full stop, end of story. That is a wrong approach to fear. It is spiritual. It's not saying it's entirely spiritual in every instance, but it's always somewhat spiritual. Um, It's never not involving that. Does that that make sense? And I thought that's what you meant. I just in case anyone
3: else needed clarity on, you know, cause I, there may be some who take medication for fear and I didn't want them to to think that it's like white or black, you know, it's one of those three options. There, there can be a place perhaps for medicating, uh, something, you know, um, like PTSD or something that I'm not familiar with, but are you relying solely on that or are you understanding that the, you know, the root of this, um, can and should be dealt with in a spiritual manner. That's all. I was just looking for clarity
2: there. A medical doctor is going to weigh in. Hello? Um, No, I'm no longer a medical doctor, by the way. A former
0: medical doctor is going to weigh in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my problem with medication is it's like treating a headache. Uh, The medication treats the symptoms. Bingo. And all we're trying to do is buy time. And then I had a couple other comments on Mitch's sermon. Um, To me, it was like heresy. Our pastor can be replaced. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't quite say that. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I missed on your outline. You made several good points of um, dealing with fear. And they were good points. They didn't come from the scripture. And so you left them out of your outline. So now I have to go back and listen to the podcast.
0: Too many trials and travails. We will all enter the kingdom, Steve. Let me say one thing on your point about treating the symptom. That is, of course, the danger that the, do they call it, is it still, see, I thought it was psychotropic, and now I'm hearing, is, it, is that the term for the medicine, psychotropic? Psychotropic? Or psychoactive? Because I'm now seeing more and more people talking about psychoactive drugs. Did they stop using psychotropic as the term? I don't know. Okay, well, the problem with that is you are only ever dealing with a symptom. You're dealing with the experience of fear. And God gave us our emotions for a reason. And, and so one of the examples, this is the danger of that exclusive only treating the symptom. If I sit on a thumbtack, I will experience some pain. Um, and I could complain of that pain. And you could give me painkillers such that that pain would go away. You haven't really helped me if I still have the tack in my posterior Right, And so the danger is if you only erase the symptom and don't figure out, hey, is there a reason why? Is there something you're thinking, something you're believing, something that's taking place? That underlying cause will just continue while you simply... And eventually, also, the, the drugs will work less and less effectively. So it's not even, as you're buying time, it's not even a permanent solution. It's, it's You can kick the can down the road far enough so you're actually making things worse long-term. So... Um, one, of the, one of the things another medical doctor who's a Christian counselor I know said is he's very reluctant to get people on those types of drugs without some sort of exit strategy. Now, maybe a long-term exit strategy, but he's very hesitant to give someone a lifelong Um, prescription or lifelong treatment that doesn't ultimately wean them because he knows you'll either lift up the dose or it'll stop working anyway. So I thought there was some wisdom there. But again, let no one be mistaken, neither Mitchell nor I are licensed medical doctors. Um, So, okay. Who's kind of
4: silly, but When you said it um, during the sermon, you just repeated it, that all fear is um, spiritual, I am deathly afraid of spiders. And I was trying to figure out, how the heck is that spiritual? So, and I've said, okay, God, I know there's a reason you made spiders. But, and I can deal with little ones now, but big ones, I'm not, uh." So I just, I know it sounds silly, but is that spiritual?
1: I would say it is theological, and, okay. the, re- and the reason is because of uh, Genesis 1 and 2. That's one, that's one reason. God made all creatures, um, fowls, fish of the sea,
0: spiders. Is it possible spiders did not exist until after the fall?
4: There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or they looked very different beforehand. <laughs> Cute and cuddly perhaps. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Sorry.
0: I'm just having fun here. I'm sorry.
1: I believe that spiders were created... <laughs> there you go. I'm not going to get into that discussion. <laughs> but... Yeah, that, that's the first and, I think, primary reason why it is theological, because it has to do with a creation of God. Uh-huh. And um, I'm my, still
0: going to squash that sucker. <laughs> no, no, can I, Let me... Don't mistake there don't you. mistake there spiritual you. for necessarily ethical or moral. It's by spiritual immaterial our thinking our spirits there are souls disembodied unbrained souls under the throne of God without brains who are thinking and praying things. Our our minds and our brains interact with thought no doubt. But thinking is spiritual, right? Um, mm-hmm. that that's the point. And so fear involves thinking. Not all fear is sinful. And in fact, there are certain places you should be afraid. God mm-hmm. tells people the beginning of wisdom is to fear him. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though fear in and of itself means you're doing something wrong. If you're leaning over the edge of the Grand Canyon and crippling fear hits you, there's nothing, that might be a sign everything's working properly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in a house that's on fire and you're filled with fear, again, if someone was kind of lassy and, I better put out that pesky fire. <laughs> we might think something's wrong. Like, what do you want? So saying uh-huh. it's spiritual is not the same thing as saying it's sinful in every instance. Okay. But it's not simply my fear gland kicked in. Okay. So the example I'll use is if if, if uh, you get a knock on your door and you open it and there's a masked man with a bloody knife, depending on whether or not it's Halloween, mm-hmm. will depend on whether or not a bunch of adrenaline dumps into your system, whether you have a panic response, you have to interpret that event. Even if you're not aware you're interpreting it, you have to think about it. Mm -hmm. You have to respond with some sort of thought or belief. That's the fundamental point is it's involving thinking, believing something. Now, it may be wholly appropriate. You're being chased by a tiger and I'm terrified. Like, that's that's right. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Um... Now, even there, what you do with your fear is ethical. Being afraid is not itself wicked, or, or, or would you would you agree with that Mitchell? Being afraid is not sinful. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Yep.
1: But yeah, but I, I guess I would just add to that, and, and uh, it, it's not specifically to the to the uh, to the subject of fearing spiders or. Else, but the i guess i would just highlight that when you become a christian when you come underneath the lordship of christ he becomes the lord of your emotions as well so that that plays a part in kind of reconciling the fear that you have of spiders and a couple of places that i can think of that that deal with that like philippians chapter 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's all wrapped up in your emotions. That's a command from the apostle. How can you tell us that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Because God has now become the Lord of your emotions. And you can literally ask him, please help me to rejoice. Help me to be filled with joy. Another another place is in Romans chapter 12. Um, verse 15 rejoice with those who rejoice of, of course the same principle but then it also says weep with those who weep i don't feel like weeping well god is the lord of your emotions so he can help you to weep with those who weep so anyways not specifically relevant to the you know the situation spiders but anyways the general principle of the fact that uh all Christians have come under the Lordship of Christ, and therefore He is the Lord of your emotions, along with your, your finances and your family and your children and your worship and everything else. So.
0: Where, where fear is going to become ethical is when it prompts you to respond to it. So like, let's just take your fear of spiders. Suppose one day you saw a spider here at church, and, and so next week you said, I can never go back to church. I saw a spider there. Now you've elevated your fear of spiders to a point where there are clear commands in scripture you're not willing to obey. Because at the end of the day, you've got to ask the question, am I willing to risk encountering a spider to be obedient? If the answer is, yeah, then I think we're in the realm of like the healthy, yeah, there's some things that are creepy and spiders can bite. And, you know, there's some spiders that jump. That's terrifying. You know, I I get it. The question is, can we can we be faithful and trust God? Trusting God doesn't mean I am not experiencing fear. There's a greater fear, Mitchell said it earlier, that one fire puts out another. I'm more afraid of the living God than I am of spiders. I'm more afraid of the living God than these Philistines trying to kill me, I think is ultimately what's championing it. It's not as though David stops recognizing real threat in these Philistines. So those are plastic swords. No, they got real swords, they've got real tools that can harm him. There's a living God I fear more. Therefore that is, it, the other illustration Piper will use a lot is ballast in a boat. The 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 keel and the weight at the bottom of the boat that keeps it stable God is to take God as holy really is he's heavy. Um, his chavod, his glory is his heaviness he's weighty you know and so literally the blasphemy is treating God lightly and so with this weight stabilizing you if you've got a boat that has a keel that's heavy and a lot of ballast and weight, little wind doesn't just knock it over on its side. It's, it stabilizes it, something similar. but Yep, over here.
5: Um, so first of all, today is really close to home for me, so thank you very much. Um, but I wanted to throw out as well, being someone who Matt and I just learned a lot and walked through a very trialing time, um, some of y'all may know I walked through some very dark time of postpartum depression and through that we had to discuss medication as well Um, and I did end up having to go on it and it took a lot of prayer and a lot of thought and a lot of seeking counsel. We met with um, Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Daniel um, quite a bit. I also had counselors from Kansas City from a church we were home with um, before and something that was explained to us um, which was a really interesting thing I'm very nervous sharing right now but um, was that There can be a chemical imbalance Therefore You have to do something And with the goal Is that First we searched To make sure There wasn't a sin In my life That needed to be Taken care of Because there was A lot of spiritual It was a huge Spiritual struggle And walked through A very dark time Um, Is there a sin Is there Something else spiritual And if not And then We have a kid Running away also (laughs) Um.
0: Be afraid (laughs) Be very afraid
5: sorry guys (laughs) and so with that um and then with the end goal of coming off of it and so that's where we're at now is working off but that was something that was a new thing to me because i was anti completely like i would tell anybody you don't need medication you just need god you just need to focus on this and um i think that was his way of breaking me of that thought and making me study more and learn more and grow in that um
1: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just mention something that, uh, that I found to be interesting. The $3.5 billion market value for these uh, anxiety disorder medications came from a CNBC article that in large part had to do with uh, addiction to anxiety medication. And so that's kind of getting to your point, Casey, that uh, do you do you see the medication as a help or do you see it as... Like your your mainstay, uh, the center of your life kind of pill.
0: So, and of course, that's, you know, obviously that it was People are prescribing antidepressants for their pets now. That, no, that's not even fringe. In California, it's pretty no- In California, it's, they're running the problems with these psychoactive or psychotropic drugs. They're getting into the water tables because so many people are on them. Um, that it's actually getting into the water table through just people, you know, using it both (laughs) people
5: sorry something else like for us that without talking to you and pastor daniel and then um the counselors that we've counseled with before and then through that it was only um we didn't take the doctors not that the doctor was inadequate but they were secular they were not walking in truth, Um, so without communicating through, like, and with a biblical counselor and working through that, like, I would not, we wouldn't have just gone and said, hey, I want this from a doctor because I wasn't comfortable with that. He wasn't comfortable with that, so.
0: Well, yeah, let me, yeah, let me speak to that. What, if you go to a doctor who is coming from a naturalistic worldview, there is no supernatural, and in naturalism every single physical or, or, or every single um, effect will have a natural cause. So th- you are never going to get from a naturalist, have you possibly some unconfessed sin in your life? But we know from Psalm 32 that David talks about, he was in agony with God's hand was on him because of that. So if you're dealing with someone who has no category for that, do not be surprised when everything gets diagnosed as a physical cause. That does not mean there's never a physical cause. It just means I would expect only a physical prescription. So my normal counsel to someone would be, before psychotropic drugs became readily available, God's people have had his word for 2,000 years. I'd start there. I'd get you as faithfully trusting in God, his promises faithfully trying to battle fear with the community of faith, with the church. Um, And then then consider if you're still dealing with my wife, um, I know she shared this with you, about three or four weeks after Abner was born, went through about two weeks of like panic attack, crippling fear, we don't know what it was could it be a hormone dump, postpartum something she ate, satanic I don't know I know that it was crippling, we had to like pull over the car at times to pray, and God's grace saw us through it, if that persisted for six months, would I consider yeah, I I probably would but I want to start first and foremost, am I being faithful to God in this trial first, and then consider moving from there. So, yeah, the the point being, if you go see a doctor with anxiety, they will, they will assume, unless you're dealing with a a non-naturalist, they will assume there's a physiological cause, because everything is chemicals in your brain. Everything is physiological. There is no immaterial. So everything by default has, an immateri- has a material cause. I mean, that's just, that's just par for the course when you're dealing with secular naturalism. So, of course, they're going to come up with a natural material problem, which will then have a natural material solution, um, which is not to say there are never natural material solutions. It just means if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's, yeah, okay. Well, the other piece of counsel I'd get from um, my old mentor, Dr. John Street, who's uh, the the president, or at least a past president, I don't know if he's the current president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, is regularly when he's got people doing counseling, he has them to get a physical. I mean, there's the flip side, which is Elijah gets suicidal, right? God, kill me. And God gives him a nap and some food. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a snack and a nap. No, and he, God feeds him, he tells him to sleep, and then he makes him go sleep again, and then they talk. And there is a spiritual component. Elijah's thinking is wrong, and he's to be corrected. God first says, why don't you eat something and take a nap? Okay, sleep again. Okay, now we can talk. And so uh, it doesn't, you can pursue both at the same time. Go get a physical. Make sure everything's working right. Or you find, oh, guess what? I sleep three hours a night. Oh, that's, that's significant. (laughs) You know? Um, so absolutely trying to figure out what's going on physically, um, as well, sure.
6: Um, I'm a high anxiety person too, um, but I try to keep it under wraps. But so I'm going to try to explain this. Um, God's word and trusting God is the most important thing. Right thinking is important too, and that's why God's word is so important. Because a lot of times, when you're in the midst of all this stuff, you don't really have the right thinking, and right thinking comes from God's word. And so, um, and you also have to realize that. You know God did make you the way you are, so instead of saying well <clears throat> i 've got to get rid of these <clears throat> excuse me anxiety attacks i can 't deal with this, you just have to say well this isn 't the first one, and it won 't be the last, but i 'll live through it, and you always do and um, then you have to um you know, like, one person that has helped me immensely has been Elizabeth Elliot, And um, just her voice. You can still hear her radio programs. Um, just, she has elizabethelliot.org, and I think Gateway to Joy still has the transcripts. There are videos of her. Her books are great, but to hear her talk, there's so much peace in her voice. And um, she is a person that is very, very basic about helping teach you how to have the right thinking that is God's way of thinking. And so um, those, those type of things. And then also, you know, God's given us a brain for a reason, and so I have to um, think of what my comfort level is. For instance, um, I had to leave early one day at school for a doctor's appointment, and so I emailed the principal and told him I'd be back at 4.30, but the time was over at 3.30 that day. And he said, why come back? The day is over, and I emailed back, it's my comfort level. I need at least two hours to prepare for the next day, and I know that's how I am. So I have to do that. I have to make those conscious decisions, and, and one of my things is I have... And then we live in a world where we're trying to do too many things in too short of a time, and I know everybody... <laughs> that causes stress and anxiety. So... Um, I think, you know, what we have to do is is think, okay... And I'm getting older, so it takes me longer to do things than it used to. And so I have to f- figure that in, too. And then I have to, um, you know, like, n- not get, you know, frustrated when people don't work on my, you know, where I'm at. But I do... You do have to understand. You have to have right thinking, you know, cognitive... You know, cognitive therapy is a really helpful thing because... You know, especially from a Christian um, counselor, because you you know you see the principles there 's universal principles in god 's Word that everybody can live by, whether they 're Christians or not, but you, so you know sometimes we miss those universal principles and then we 're trying to do too many things, and for me, the anxiety manifests itself in my body, so I have to be sure that I manage it all the time because that 's one of the reasons probably I have fibromyalgia. And, you know, all these other, you know, things, too. And I have a husband that's very understanding.
4: I was going to say, and the husband has a real part
6: in understanding what his wife's limits are and what her emotional nature is and what she can be pushed into and what she should not be pushed into. I'll just say that little comment there, (laughs) again. And he's very good at that.
3: Greg. Uh, verse 8 of our text today talks about, and, I, and, and you mentioned some about the book. I'll just read it. It says, you have kept, you have kept count of all my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And you referenced some mention about the book, but in your study, did you see anything else that the Bible references about this bottle or, or maybe something um, like a bottle that God keeps tears in or, 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 you know, fears or, you know, trials from others?
1: Well, specifically with regard to bottle there, there is a possibility, uh, though it's probably, um, not what David is referencing, uh, that he's referencing a kind of a bottle that ancient Jews used to put wine into. Um, I, I, but that's not scriptural. It's You can't find that in the text. I don't think you can find that in the Old or New Testament. Correct me if I'm wrong. New Testament wouldn't even matter anyways. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I guess all, all we can know about that is the tears are contained. The tears are kept. And it's in keeping with the other statements kept count, record keeping and and the first statement and then also a book. Uh a book is not generally trashed, it's not forgotten. A book is possessed to be read. It's it's possessed to uh well keep record of of uh, of certain kinds of information and and, it's, and in this particular context is very very personal. So Anyways, I can't, I can't really <laughs> offer any kind of help uh, regarding what exactly that bottle is and what the book is, but I just tried to draw, especially with book, draw a connection uh, with Malachi chapter 3 and a book of remembrance. Now, a book of remembrance, of course, in the context of Malachi, I think is talking about something else, but we do know that God has a book in Malachi 3. God has a book in Psalm 56, and then, of course, God has a book of life and the Book of Revelation. So those books contain uh, precious information, and so I think that's a real comfort to David. Should be a comfort to us too.
0: It, clearly, it's a metaphor, Greg. Right? I mean, no one is suggesting physiological material tears are in a container somewhere, like billions of tears. In a, it's a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that paints intimacy. It's a bottle of tears. I mean, that's an intimate possession. And a book, it's permanence. I mean, so I think it communicates the intimacy of it. It's not just God's got it in his ledger, three tears. He's got him in a a bottle or a vial close to him. It shows concern, and the book shows permanent remembrance. That metaphor itself, I don't think, gets picked up and used. Some metaphors get used repeatedly, like Israel is God's vine gets used a number of times. I'm not aware of this particular metaphor being used other metaphors, like what Mitchell used about um, the, the the prayers of the saints being the um, being the the bowl of incense in Revelation, where now you've got another source for keeping something, but now it's a pleasing aroma. And ultimately, you didn't read it, but when when God unleashes his plagues on the earth, he does it by having an angel cast that bowl of incense down to the earth. Which, makes, which means then prayers offered up over millennium for deliverance, for, for uh, help, are answered in, in, in the events of the book of Revelation. That some of those plagues, some of that destruction, some of that judgment that comes is the answer to those prayers. That we even see in Revelation, the souls under the throne of God, how long, O Lord, till you vindicate our blood, how long until you avenge us. Um, that God is, that none of that's forgotten. None of that is being swept away. None of that is, I don't, God's keeping track of every last bit of it. And there will be a balancing of the scales. Yeah, I was
3: familiar with the other metaphors, but that seemed like a unique one. And I just wasn't sure if that was picked up anywhere else or, you know, if that had any ties to something else. But like you've mentioned it, it, you know, the idea of keeping and, and even like, you know, um, like you were saying, um, is, is there, but I just wasn't sure if.
0: It, if it's it might like, even give the idea of preciousness, because before plastics and stuff, bottles are not easy to come by. I mean, so like there's an alabaster flask in the New Testament, but you put precious things in the alabaster flask. You know, valuable ointment and valuable. Um, had to
1: break it in order to access the perfume.
0: So that also might indicate something's precious as well. That might be an indication through that metaphor.
4: I. Is it on? <clears throat> Is it on? Um, first of all, thank you for your sermon. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but my mind tends to wander sometimes. And I missed two things that I wished I, you would tell me. <laughs> one was, you said, don't try this at home. And one was, um, you were glad you were a Christian. And you said something before that of things that you didn't want to be. And I missed them. So can you fill me in or not?
1: Yeah, I, I do. I in. do
4: listen. It just once in a while, my mind wanders, and it's always at the wrong time.
1: I've kept record of what I've said. So <laughs> in, here... his, in his book, <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, let me find it.
0: Uh... Unlike yours truly, Mitchell is is using a manuscript. So just so everything Mitchell said was typed beforehand. Um, while Mitchell's looking it up. You have a much greater likelihood of, of being able to figure out what Mitchell said than if it were me.
1: Do, do you remember what section it was in? Was it Or was it towards the end, middle, or beginning? I don't think it was in the beginning. Yes, Greg.
3: The comment about don't try this at home was in reference to David acting, uh, kind of, you know, what he did. Going crazy and having uh, his
0: drool drip. That's, that, that was that reference. There. Wanda, if you see a spider... Do not start drawing on your doorposts. <laughs> it's probably not going to help. I, um, yeah, yeah. My children are going to try this next time. Abner, get in here. Well, I may uh, not have the
4: exact fear you have, but I don't like spiders either. And you never know if they're poisonous, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember. Does anybody else know what? Yeah, I,
1: I think I. You remember were telling now. something
4: about. Um, he was talking about something about what Christians shouldn't be or something. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? I thought, what did he say? What did he say? Does anybody know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, I do. <laughs> he's kept track of it. Just because it's in his book doesn't mean he's going to be able to just access it.
4: Does this mean that other people's minds wander?
0: <laughs> Perhaps.
4: I was paying attention. I really was.
1: This makes it more difficult to search.
0: Far more entertaining. While he's looking uh, at,
1: I think it was, I think it was at the at the back end of, um, remedy for fear. So I said, if we if we don't take up these two God given remedies for fear then we will no doubt experience more intensified stress, harbored anxieties and a joyless Christian life, which is not good. Of course, we don't, I don't want that for anybody. No, nobody else. That's just not a good place to be in. I think that's, is that what you were talking about? Okay. I'm sorry, I don't have a Google search bar in my, I wish I did. Okay.
0: okay. It's you also really on the want, website. This will be on a podcast. You could listen to the entire message all over again and find the exact comment that you missed. You could do that, too. We've kept it not in our book, but in a podcast. One, one thing I would add, um, thinking about what um, Kathy was saying, and right thinking, and you get that from God's truth, from his word... It's like, how important is Bible memorization just in and of itself? Um, Think about David meditating on God in the watches of the night. Like, he's probably doing it for memory. And it's like, nighttime is one of the hardest times, I think, with fear and anxiety. It's like, that's the time that you need his word the most. If David had busted out a Hebrew scroll of Deuteronomy, it would probably be a pretty dead giveaway as to his identity when he was locked into Gath. I'm just guessing, but it seems likely to me the word that he's praising is word he has memorized, not a scroll he brought with him.
1: Yeah, he probably doesn't have a, you know, warrior's Bible in his little pack with him, you know, as he's in Gath. Probably not. But yeah, I mean, with... Psalm one nineteen verse one sixty two. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Other translations say treasure. So, um, but I kind of going back to what Kathy was saying. Uh, I tried to make the point of examining yourself and detecting what the triggers are for fear. Um, and it's and it's not it's not true that everybody is the same. Now, yes, the principles of the Word of God are applicable to everybody. But this just, um, I think, helps us to understand the veracity of the word of God and how flexible it is and how, how useful it is when we can look at a situation like you, Kathy, and, and then Casey and, and anybody else. And they have, they have different struggles and they have different triggers, but then the same word of God is able to be used of God to help them. So I just find that amazing. Simeon, could you expand more
3: on vows and thank offerings in verse twelve? Just kind of how that would be applicable in our lives, how we could do that.
1: Well, we don't have a temple, so I'll, I'll just say this at the outset: we don't have a temple. We're not—I don't believe that we're under the law of of a vow keeping. Um, but uh, I think the vows that David is talking about, and of course, Jeremy can correct me if he thinks I'm so, but I think the vows that he's talking about are the thank offerings. Um, and of course, I think that may, from what I've seen, can include offering, you know, oil or, or animal sacrifice or something like that. Um, but for us, I think, in general, it has to do with our commitment to Christ. When, when, and I, and I, I would actually venture to say that if, if somebody has, you know, been in the, been in the waters of baptism and they've and they've confessed that Jesus is Lord and believe in, the, in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead, and then they go on living in a in a sinful way, then I would actually say that their whole life is blasphemy against the Lord. Uh. Anyways, I I hope I'm not inappropriately importing an Old Testament principle into the New Testament, but but I say that because this first and foremost has to deal with our commitment to regard Christ as Lord. Whatever He says, I do. His word is my law, and I'm not going to forsake Him. Um, But beyond that, I think maybe it can find relevance when we Make a commitment to a friend. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for you. Well, pray for them. Make sure that you have that that very same resolve in your mind that David had. I must, I must make my vows. So, if that's helpful.
0: Well, and it may be the case. Vows to God is prescribed and is part of the. Um, temple worship system, Mosaic Law. And and one of the reasons Mitchell and I agree with him is is not just importing it straight across is because Jesus says something different about making vows. And whether or not you absolutize that, there are some Christian sects that could never even take a vow under oath or whatever. Certainly there seems to be some disjunct, discontinuity between the vow system in the old testament and the new, regardless if you, Ecclesiastes is clear. You make a promise to God, you better keep it. You better not say, oh, I didn't mean it. And certainly in my life, there are times where through discipline or through difficulty, I am made aware of sin, failures of commission or omission in my life. And, and when we're frightened and when um, God's got our attention, we, we may well say, Lord, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that anymore, or I'm going to start doing this thing I should do. Um, And you're not trying to barter with him. He got your attention. You see it. Yes. Go do that. Keep that. Um, Explicitly, though, if you turn to Psalm 51, turn a couple of Psalms back, I think what David's likely referencing about his vows is seen even more clearly here. Um, So he's asking God to remove the guilt of his sin from him. And he's doing this as a believer, interestingly enough. David, when he committed the sin with Bathsheba, uh, has the spirit. He's he's righteous in the sense that he's trusted in God. This is, I believe, that relational forgiveness, which makes it clear, relational sin and forgiveness is still a big deal. He says, um, and he's talking about the things he will do. Pick it up in verse 10. Create me a clean heart, O God and manure a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me of the willing spirit. Now that's what he wants God to do. And then he makes it clear the things he will do if and when God does this. Then I will teach transgressors your way. I would suggested that Psalm 32 may well be him keeping that promise. In the middle of Psalm 32, I will instruct you, I will teach you. Um, then I'll teach sinners your way deliver me from blood guiltiness O God O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud there's another thing I'm going to teach I'm going to sing open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it you will not be pleased so David is simultaneously promising things and he's making it clear he knows the things he's promising aren't buying forgiveness from God you don't there's no amount of sacrifices I'm going to do that's going to make up for killing a man and stealing his wife. For um, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A oh, broken and contrite heart of oh God you will not despise. Do good design, your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. So David's not saying the sacrificial system's unimportant or, or he can set it aside under the law of Moses. He just recognizes... It's not these sacrifices that are getting the job done. It's not these sacrifices that are somehow removing my sin. Only an act of God's grace can do that. But as a recipient of God's grace, I better be faithful to obey the law. So I think he balances it well here where he makes it clear. I know these sacrifices are not doing the thing. But if you will forgive and take away my sin, I will offer the right sacrifices, as you've told me to do. And so he's, he's making some promises while making it clear he doesn't think he's buying it. Sometimes we'll bargain, right? Oh, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise. And you're hoping you're going to put a big enough um, shiny metal thing in the plate that's going to tempt. Well, if he's going to promise that, I, I guess I will deliver him then, huh? You know, David's not trying to do that. But he's making it clear there are things he will do um, once God has restored and delivered him. And I, I think there's a connection there, something similar going on there about fulfilling his vows. But five minutes.
2: Could you explain
6: more thoroughly how um, praise, thanksgiving, gratitude, or remembrance of God's faithfulness helps to battle, battle fear?
1: well, the examine yourself uh, just having a plan and praying about it um I'm trying to think of some psalms that talk about the works of God and uh maybe.
0: Yeah, I'll, take a, I'll take a swing. Um, oftentimes, when we're afraid, we have forgotten practically truth, true things. Um, so, the, the example I remember Stuart Scott pointing out to me was the uh, 12 spies that go spy on the land, and the 10 come back with a partially accurate report. If you go and listen to read their report, there's nothing unfactual about it, they've left out important truth. And so frequently when we're experiencing um, this type of fear, we've forgotten things that are true about God. And so, no, it's, I mean, I'll give you an example. My, my daughter stopped breathing. That was, that got my attention and could it happen again? It could happen again. You know, um, do I have any promises it won't happen again? No. Yeah. You know I mean, so there, so she's, Serena takes her off to the ER and I felt helpless. I'm, I'm looking for updates. I'm supposed to be teaching the counselors and how's she doing. um, and I have to remember what's true about God. And praise is one of the ways to force you to remember what God's, because you're recounting what he's done. You're, 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 t- you're praising him for what he's done, and you're saying, okay. I, so what I had to do and what I did is go remember what God has done. And so one of two things is going to happen. God is going to deliver my daughter, or he will show up with sufficient grace to get me through something I do not want to happen but there's no third alter there's no third outcome where he just casts me aside and just dumps me and pours out curses on my life that doesn't happen so I remember the things he's done, and, and in praising him, and reminding myself, and confessing his acts, his saving acts, I'm putting in front of my eyes his character. And as I remember his character, I, I trust in him. And this this is again and again and again and again in the scriptures, but probably the most um, clear would be going to Psalm seventy seven. Um, this is th- this this pattern of remembering and rehearsing God's acts and deeds. This is, I think, why in Deuteronomy so often is remember, repeat, remember, do not forget, remember. Our men's group, Greg, remember how much repetition was in Deuteronomy? And it's because we forget, practically. I mean, yes, someone will come in and you'll say, oh yeah, I know that, but I'm walking around f- practically forgetting it. And the problem with the 10 spies is they come back with a report that's the report of a practical atheist. There's no living God who made promises in this report. There's just big, scary people. And so, yeah, if you just factor in the big, scary people, it's hopeless. They're going to destroy us. It's terrifying. And then Caleb and Josh are like, yeah, but God's promised us this land. So then what? And so Psalm 77, you're dealing with somebody who I'm sure would be diagnosed as clinically depressed. These are the questions that they are grappling with. Pick it up in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I mean, I mean, we, we glance over these, but picture somebody who's really, really wants to talk to you. Allison, I I don't know. I, I think God's changed, and I think you could trust him in the past. You can't trust him anymore. I don't know. That's, that's what I'm wrestling with. That's what this person's confessing. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the ears of the right hand of the Most High— I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And what clearly happens is the psalmist is going back to the Exodus. You'll see that. And so in grappling with all these fears and all of these, I don't know what God's doing. Let me go back to how God saved my people. And you're remembering who God is. And this is the, and look at this, like on a dime, your way, O oh God ugh, Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. With your arm you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, that your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Wait a second. I thought you were wondering whether God could be trusted anymore. And so the way this psalmist in Psalm 77, and who wrote 77? Um Asaph deals with this despondency and fear and, and depression is by going back and recounting, praising God for what he did in the Exodus. And in doing that, he's reminded of God's faithfulness. He's reminded of God's power. He's reminded of who God is. Praise does that for us, uh, I, I think. At least in part, that's how praise helps us not fear. Is as we tell ourselves again and again, or you hear from others who God is and what he has done, it, it wells up within us hope. Like, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you hear about God's faithfulness with Blanche. Like, oh, yeah, God can do things. He can. Wow. You know, and you hear other stories, and it makes you hopeful because you're being reminded of who God is. Inevitably, um, we are forgetting who God is um, throughout uh, throughout our days. And so one of the best remedies is to rehearse and praise God for who he is and what he's done.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the. Psalm 34, verse 2 says that, it the point that you're trying to make. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Wow, when I talk about the goodness of God, when I talk about what God has done in my life, people who are of the same fabric, other Christians are going to hear that, and they're going to be encouraged. And one of the beauties of the body of Christ is it's kind of like a recirculating uh, system of encouragement well I, I might be downcast one day and then I hear about how God is working in the lives of others and I'm encouraged and then other, other days the person who had encouraged me before is downcast and I encourage him with what God is doing in my life So
0: we are over time thank you Mitchell we can stick around up front Mitchell can answer all your questions um, but we have to end now thank you